Uh, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human, uh, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. I want us to hear in this passage that for those who are under sin, Paul's terminology here, which is all of us, for those who are under sin, freedom from God's condemnation can only come from the grace of the one who has the power to condemn. If freedom from God's condemnation can only come from the grace of the one who has the power to condemn us in the first place. There's a uh, 21st century uh, French novelist and philosopher uh, named uh, Malraux. And he wrote a lot about art and he said something interesting that has stuck with me for a while and I think uh, that uh, as it applies to art, so too does it apply uh, to the way that the Jews were looking at the law. Andre Moreau said uh, that museums uh, actually serve to uh, destroy artwork uh, because a museum contains a piece of art that has been stripped of its context. You take a piece of sculpture or a piece of uh, a two-dimensional art, and you uh, strip it out of its context, and you put it in a, in a museum, this uh, sterile room or gallery, and people are allowed to uh, walk all around it and study it under perfect lighting. And Moreau says you, you actually ruin the art. Uh, the art becomes something different. He went so far as to say this, the uh, original piece of artwork as it appears in a museum is no longer the original. How can it be? Its context is gone. It's something different now. And the Jews have taken uh, the Holy Scripture, they've taken uh, the very Word of God, what Paul has already called the oracles of God, and they've placed it in a bit of a gallery, as it were a gallery of their own estimation, their own understanding, their own application, a gallery of their own heart. They walk around the law. They critique the law. They actually are using the law in a way it was never intended to be used. They have created a cultural artifact out of the very word of God. Now, Paul in this passage is going to uh, drive two truths home, and he's going to do so by, uh, first of all, asking uh, if the Jews are better off. This is, this is really just a two-point sermon. The second point's lengthy, I'll admit. 
But I want us to begin with just the first half of uh, verse 9. Uh, are we any better off? Are the Jews any better off? And then uh, the second point is I want, to, uh, I want us to rest just a little bit with the phrase under sin and, and, and deal with the second half of verse 9 all the way to uh, 20 uh, altogether. Because I think those passages that uh, Paul lists are there to serve uh, for our understanding of the phrase under sin. So uh, there you have uh, the sermon, better off and under sin, a two-part sermon. Uh, are, are we Jews any better off? That's how Paul begins. Are we Jews any better off? I, I don't want us to miss Paul's solidarity. The phrase, uh, are we Jews any better off, is really in the Greek read, are we any better off? Uh, the word Jew isn't there at the beginning of verse 9, and uh, I wonder if Paul is uh, throwing himself right into the debate. Uh, he himself is a Jew, and when he says, are we any better off? Well, he's ascribing solidarity with all of the Jews that are in the Roman church. Well, are we better off? That word for better off uh, means to stand out, to be prominent. Uh, to be marked. And not only that, when he says, are we Jews any better off, uh, uh, it, it seems as though this is the second time that this question has been asked. I would direct you to uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 3, and there we find a question that, that at least on the surface feels similar. Uh, he asked there in 3.1 if there is any advantage for the Jew or if there is a value in circumcision. And then he says with confidence in the very next verse, Romans 3, 2, uh, much in every way, much in every way. And so there seems to be an advantage, and it seems that the Jews are better off, much in every way, Romans 3, 2. But the kind of advantage that he's talking about in the beginning of Romans 3 and the kind of value that he's talking about, well... It's, it's very carefully defined by Paul. Uh, still looking at the beginning of chapter 3, just uh, as a means of kind of catching us up by looking at where I preached last week, uh, Paul says to, to begin with, uh, we could read that as principally, uh, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews have not just God's general revelation in creation, God reveals himself in creation. Uh, they have not just God's uh, general revelation uh, in the inner voice of the human conscience. God uh, speaks to us by way of conscience. But the Jews also have God's special revelation, his oracles, his holy scripture, the Old Testament. God has gathered these Jews to himself and, uh, and he has called them his own audience and he's spoken to them as his special audience. We might think of uh, being in a crowded room, a lot like this crowded room, and someone a lot like me uh, speaking generally to everyone, but then for a moment uh, making eye contact and just addressing one person in the room. I could illustrate that, but I won't. It's terrifying. One person staring right at you, speaking to you in the midst of others. That's really uh, what Paul seems to be saying. The, the advantage is not who the Jews are. The advantage is uh, God uh, directing his divine voice right at them. It's who God is. 
That's the advantage. That's the value. Not who you are, who God is. Holy Scripture is addressed specifically to them. And then Paul continues this argument in in chapter 3 because look what he does in verse 4 of chapter 3. He dives right into an Old Testament passage from Psalm 51. There is an advantage to being a Jew. There is a value in circumcision, and that is this, that God has spoken with his holy scripture. Well, in our passage this morning, look what Paul does. He quotes a lot of scripture. And we look in Romans 3, 9, Paul is actually going to answer this question, are the Jews any better off? Not with a much in every way, as he does in the beginning of 3, but with a confident, not at all. Certainly not. So what does he mean by this? Are the Jews any better off? Not at all, Paul says. Well, what does he mean? And we actually need to skip down to Romans 3 verse 20 to find out what it is that Paul means when he says, uh, certainly not or no, not at all. What Paul means is that standing out in the crowd because the voice of God is directed right at you is one thing. But standing out in the crowd because you are justified in God's sight, that's something altogether different. Hearing the voice of God loud and clear, that's one thing. Oracles of God proclaimed straight to you, that's one thing. But satisfying God, that's something entirely different. You see what Paul is doing here? He's drawing a distinction between, yes, there is an advantage in in hearing God's word, uh, that divine eye contact. But that's completely different than, than being any better off by being able to stand innocently before God. God's answer, because Paul is going to treat the oracles of God, God's answer is certainly not. You're not any better off because you can satisfy God. You can't satisfy God. And that's what all the scriptures uh, in uh, uh, 10 on show us. You you see, in the second half of verse 9, Paul uh, expands upon the difficulty of answering no, not at all. You see, Paul believes that the oracles of God, Scripture itself, say that the people who have heard God's voice most clearly are no better off than anyone else. And there's a good reason why that's possible. It's possible because the Jews, focusing on what makes them different from the rest of the world, possessing God's special revelation, have actually conveniently ignored what makes them identical to the rest of the world. You see, they focused on that which makes them separate from the world, God giving his very oracles to them, but they've taken their attention off that which makes them identical to the rest of the world, their very sin, which is universal. They've assumed that they were special not only because they have the word of God, they assumed that they were special because they have the satisfaction of God more so than the rest of the world. And what Paul says then is he says that we have already charged you Uh, charged all that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. When we find instances of this in Scripture, when the author says something like, I have uh, said already, as Paul does here, we have already charged, uh, it's good to stop in your Bible reading and go backwards and find out where it was that Paul did already say that thing. 
And when we do that with this particular verse, as we have already charged, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, we can go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul's already said that everyone is under the wrath and condemnation of God. Skipping down in Romans chapter 1 to verse 32, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree, they not only do them, they not only uh, sin, but they give approval to, to those who practice sin. And then repeatedly he's going to say that humanity is without excuse before God. Romans 1.20, Romans 2.1. That all of mankind is called to acknowledge the, the kindness and the patience of God and to repent rather than storing up wrath for themselves through a hard and impenitent heart that refuses God's grace. Paul's already lopped all of humanity together and said that no man, no woman is without excuse. All of humanity lives their life with the expectation of the judgment of God. He's already said that. And so when Paul says that he has already charged that all are under sin, here's what he means, Romans 2.11. He said that there will be a day when God judges all humanity, uh, Jew and Greek, and that when that happens, no one has any advantage at all. He's going to judge without partiality. And it's true, some were given the Bible firsthand, uh, God's divine gaze in the face of the Hebrew people. But some uh, have, uh, were given the Bible indirectly through someone, through someone else, through someone else, not a Jew at all. And then some have never seen the Bible. But what Paul says in Romans 2.11 is that nobody, nobody gets to remain standing before God's judgment. Nobody gets to stand before God and take that judgment and live without any condemnation at all. Everyone stands before God's judgment. God has the right to condemn everyone. You see, Paul has primed the hearts of his listeners already, long before he gets to 3.9. There's more. He says in Romans 2.12 that all who have sinned without the law, all who have sinned without the word of God and the Bible, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, what's Paul saying? Possessing the Bible or not possessing the Bible, it makes no difference when we stand before God. It's too late to rectify your status through your works. And so when he says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, he's referring to that reality of God's judgment. You know, the Old Testament does not defend a person in the courtroom of God's judgment. The Old Testament doesn't provide a rule by which if a person uh, would satisfy it, they will uh, match God's judgment. Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 3, it's right where he's taking us. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's why I say that the Jews have done something 
uh, unnatural with God's law. They've uh, torn it from its context, taking uh, the word of God in the Old Testament that's uniquely given to them, and they've turned it into a book of laws that if they obey them, well, they will earn God's declaration of innocence. They've taken, as it were, a piece of art, and uh, they've removed it from its context. And the reason uh, this illustration from Malraux works very well is uh, at the delivery of the Ten Commandments, even then uh, when the Ten Commandments are, are given to Moses and Moses uh, carries them down to the people, uh, commandments having been written by the finger of God, even then God's grace bathed those Ten Commandments. At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, God reminds them that he is the one who has graciously delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh. They didn't deserve that. His grace did that. And then at the very end of the Ten Commandments, what does God do? God gives Moses instructions for building an altar. Why? Why would Moses have to build an altar? Because the people's works need a sacrifice or they'll never be received before God. The Ten Commandments are never going to be that pathway that brings them to God. The sacrifice on an altar is what will do that. And so the Jews take God's special revelation. They place it in the museum of their own heart. They own it. They critique it. They use it as they see fit. But they make it entirely different than God intended. In the museum of their own arrogance, they fool themselves into thinking that by works of the law, they can be justified in God's sight. And you know they're not unique in this. Of course you know they're not unique in this. I hope you feel this in your own heart. I do mine. Even people who were not original recipients of the oracles of God do this very thing. Derek Thomas says that we are all wired for self-justification. We take these imperatives of Scripture and they just feed our need to do something in order to make ourselves just a little bit more justified. This is Derek Thomas saying this. We're all wired for self-justification. I get it. I understand what the Jews are doing with God's law. Well, there is something that the oracles of God do that is especially precious to Paul. I don't think it's the most precious thing, as Paul explains in Romans 3.21 onward, but there's something that the oracles of God, the Word of God, the Law of God, the Old Testament of God, the Bible of God, there's something that it does that is especially precious. In Romans 3.20, he says that the Bible gives us a knowledge of sin. You know, many of us have a, a close and dear friend or two or three or a dozen. And friends are special because they have an opportunity to uh, say things to us that someone who is not a friend could never say. Uh, friends, of course, encourage us and they love us, but friends uh, ought to have the right to speak to us without mincing words, to be able to uh, tell us who we really are They've earned the right over the years, our friends have, to actually sit down with us and tell us our faults. That's what a good friend does. They've earned that right. And to Paul, Scripture seems to be that kind of friend. It's a, it's a friend that, that has a closeness, a presence, but also an authority to be able to speak honestly to us. Of course, it's God speaking through Scripture. 
the scripture has the right to tell us who we are. And it would seem from Romans 3.20 that that's a very precious thing to Paul. The Bible gives us knowledge of sin. A close awareness of sin. Calls out sin. Identifies sin. It's not just an intellectualization of sin. It actually is pointing out sin. There it is. And there it is. And here it is. And so what Paul does to prove this, uh, this unique nature of Scripture to be his friend, to tell him who he is, uh, Paul is going to quote uh, five psalms, a proverb, and a piece of the prophet Isaiah. And the overall effect is clear. Human beings, they're not very nice. So says Scripture. This has been the case ever since the fall of Adam. God has spoken very clearly about this. And Paul, uh, it would seem from memory, dives into Scripture. And, and he's scooping around in Scripture. And he's pulling out evidences that human beings are sinful. They have been since the fall. I always find it interesting when we find citations in the New Testament of the Old Testament. I marvel at this particular list of quotations from Scripture. I wonder if, uh, how deliberate Paul is as he, as he chooses them. I wonder if he, if he actually has uh, texts in front of him. I wonder if the Rolodex of his mind is where he's found uh, these texts. I wonder if he has uh, reflected on them, carried them for many, many years, and they just naturally uh, come to mind. I'd love to, I'd love to know how long it took him to write Romans chapter 3. I wonder if he just sat down and wrote it. As a lover of God's word, to be sure. But I want to group all of these uh, passages in three ways. I want to say, first of all, uh, that when you, when you combine all of these passages, uh, they're going to uh, talk about sin that covers both Jews and Gentiles. They're going to, they're going to cover sin uh, that is both the kind of sin that is committed against the psalmist, but also the kind of sin that's just, that's just there. Uh, uh, it's, the, it's the universality of sin in all of these, all of these passages, all seven, when you, when you group them together. Uh, Paul seems to be covering every aspect of sin, Acted sin, sin resident and secret in a heart, the sin uh, of Jews, sin of uh, Gentiles. That's the first way you can combine all of these quotations. But I think there's two other ways to combine all of these quotations. But first, let's dwell a bit on sin. That's what Paul wants us to uh, hear in these passages from the oracle of God. In verses 10 and 12, Paul is going to cite Psalm 14. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are so very similar. And, and in Psalm 14, David refers to the whole world. He seems to be talking about a sin that blankets all of humanity. He consider, considers the entire body of, as he says, as David says, the children of man. And not a one is righteous. All have turned from God. And there in Psalm 14, uh, David seems to be talking about a sin that, that crosses the line of Jew and Gentile, public or secret. 
And then in verse 13, uh, Paul takes us to Psalm 5, and there uh, David refers to those who are uh, particularly rebellious. There's an active sin in Psalm 5, and uh, David calls them his enemies, and so it would seem as though uh, he is talking about the kind of sin uh, that, is, uh, that is directed to his fellow Jews who actually prove to be his enemies. Psalm 5 seems to focus on the sin of Jews. But then in verse 13, uh, Paul cites Psalm 140, and there uh, David refers to violent men of the world who stir up war continually. And there it would seem to be, uh, again, a reference to uh, the entire world, Jews and Gentiles. And then in verse 14, Paul goes to Psalm 10. And the psalmist there, it's, it's not a psalm of David, but the psalmist there refers to wicked people who live as if there is no God at all. But given the context of the psalm, it seems to be that's true not just of Gentiles, but Jews living as if there's no God at all. And then he takes us to a proverb. Proverb chapter 1, and there Solomon refers to a kind of sinner that entices others, uh, and he's probably there focusing on a Jewish audience, uh, Jews who are not devoted to God, who do not fear God, but instead uh, they are sinners who themselves entice others uh, into their sinfulness. Uh, Proverbs 1.16 seems to be about uh, sinful actions. And then Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 17, a long quote. Paul goes to Isaiah, and Isaiah clearly refers to the sin of Jews in the very capital in Jerusalem, in the city of Zion. Sins there as well. And then almost as a, as a capstone, uh, Paul looks at Psalm 36 and verse 18, uh, where, where there David refers to the wicked person who has no fear of God. And so uh, we have a picture of Jews who don't fear God, and we have a picture of Gentiles who don't fear God. We have a picture of sin committed. We have a picture of sin uh, resident in hearts. Uh, we have uh, wickedness in all of its stripes and all of its colors. And I wonder if these, if these particular quotations just rose to the top of his mind naturally. But there's more. All of these passages are, are combined to give us a complete picture of the wickedness of all of humanity, the sin and the need of all, of humani all humanity, the unlovable nature of all of humanity. But all of these verses, I think, combine in two other ways. One is in all of these references, when you go back and see what's there, just the, the immediate context, maybe three or four verses to the top, three or, four, three or four verses to the bottom, all of these citations say something about the huge separation between God and man. All of them do that. Huge separation between God and man. And here's something else. There's three ways that all of these verses can be combined. One is to tell us about the completeness of sin. One is to tell us about the separation between God and man. But listen to this. You won't believe this. Another way all of these passages can be combined is to show us the offer of God's grace. Four or five verses north, four or five, five verses south of the passage that Paul quotes. 
So let's talk about this. They combine because they show the universality of sin, but they also combine because they show the vast separation between God and man. Uh, Psalm 14, the very beginning, uh, Psalm 53 as well, at the very beginning, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Vast separation. Psalm 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm, four, Psalm 5, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Each of these passages do this. They show us that massive separation between God and man. Psalm 140, uh, grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Psalm 10, a better example. Uh, The wicked uh, boasts in the desires of his own soul. He's supposed to boast in the desires of God. Uh, The wicked renounces the Lord. The wicked will not seek God. Uh, The thoughts of the wicked are this. There is no God. This is Psalm 10. Massive separation between God and man. In Proverbs uh, 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then right after that, fools despise wisdom, despise instruction. They despise the Lord. Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then finally, Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Profound separation between God and man. So it could be that these passages are, uh, are bouncing around in Paul's head because they're passages that show the universality of sin. But it could be that they're passages that also show the hopelessness of man, how far he is from God, a distance too vast to be bridged by obedience to the law. I want us to take note of that. But here I have a little bit more An admonition to you. You go and look at these quotations. Look where they've come from. Open your Old Testament. And I hope that you see this. That in all of these references, very close at hand to the sinfulness of man, to the vast separation between God and man, there is also a glorious, beautiful offer of grace. Now we begin to wonder why it is that Paul has these particular verses in his head. Psalm 14, this is verse 7, the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. In Psalm 5, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Psalm 140, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of salvation. You've covered my head in the day of battle. In Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. 
Proverbs 1.23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And two more examples, Isaiah 59, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. In Psalm 36, filled with grace, uh, Psalm 36 actually is really a psalm of grace, but one example, verses five through six, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Now why, why am I drawing your attention to this. It would be uh, speculating to say that the Roman Christians, as they're uh, looking at these citations, are themselves sitting before God's word and they're reading the the context around those quotations and, and that's what Paul means for them to do. I don't know if that's what Paul meant for them to do. But I know that the passage that he selected uh, tell us about the depth and depravity of mankind and the vast separation uh, from God because of our sinfulness, but there's grace dripping all over the place in these passages. And Paul wants to put them together. Only Christianity does this. Only Christianity gives us the good friend that tells us who we really are, but then saves us from who we are. For those under sin, which is, as Paul says, all of us, freedom from God's condemnation, well, it can only come in one way, from the grace of the one who has the power to condemn. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God a distance I cannot travel. And yet God, the one with the power to condemn, loves saves, rescues. Even in these passages, I think we we need to catch that, that, that Paul doesn't want us to go too far from God's grace. That God's grace is perfectly fitted to our sinfulness. God knows who we are. God knows who you are. And his grace is perfect to address who you are. I think that's what Paul wants us to understand in terms of what it means to be under sin and yet to still live for all eternity. I want to go back to that picture of a shortcut, a picture of taking God's law, turning it uh, into a project of ethics. I want to reference an author who used to be the editor of the New York Times book review named Sam Tannenos. It was from an article a long time ago, and Uh, Sam is someone who loves literature and he says that one of the problems that we have with literature today is uh, something called a word processor. He says writers have this effortless ability to copy and delete, to paste and move. And, And what Sam says is he says that it's helped to devalue the written word in the name of bloodless perfectionism. I love that expression. To devalue the written word in the name of bloodless perfectionism. And I think that this is often how we live our lives. We uh, take as Christians God's holy word and we, we scan it for what to do next, what to do next, what to do next. We copy, we paste, we delete backwards, we add more context or more content, we uh, move the words around. Bloodless perfectionism. 
And we're not to live our lives that way as Christians. As Christians, we of all people should understand the great grace of God to abridge that vast distance that our sin creates. We are the ones who find grace all over Scripture. And the bloodless perfectionism is not a bloodless perfectionism. It's a, perfe- it's a perfectionism that ought to be filled with blood, dripping with blood, because it's the perfectionism of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who perfectly follows that law. He's the one. He's the one who gives stickiness, solidity, earthiness, truth to all of the grace that we see in Scripture. It's there because of him. And so we can hear the Ten Commandments and we cannot be scalded. He's the perfect one. He's the one who bled. And because of his blood, because of his blood, there is perfection before God. We're not justified by the law, Paul is saying. We're justified by the one who is gracious. The one who condemns is the only one who can save. And he has done that by crushing his own son on the cross. That is grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for our brother Paul, for his reminder to those who would abuse the law and use it as a shortcut to your favor. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would alert Uh, our hearts by your spirit to that principle inside of ourselves would we be corrected discipline us but with tenderness that we might find our comfort not in our works and in our efforts but that we might find our comfort in his works his efforts your great grace in Jesus Christ in whom we come amen